All right, so as I said, we're in Matthew chapter 21 today. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. Uh, we are doing a little bit of a sidestep here. As Pastor had already mentioned, um, this is the Passion Week. Uh, this coming Friday will be Good Friday and then our Easter service. Uh, so today is Palm Sunday, what we all know and celebrate every year as Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter. So I've never got to teach on a, a Palm Sunday before, so I'm going to take us to this text known as the Triumphal Entry. Uh, and this is kind of where the, the whole idea of Palm Sunday came from. So we're taking just a little break from Mark, and we're actually going to be fast-forwarding about a year ahead and uh, from where we are in Mark to this time. So we're taking a little jump to the future from where we are in Mark to Matthew. So I'll read our text, and then we'll pray, and uh, we'll, we'll dig in. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. And truly, this is a beautiful text as we see you receiving the praise that you are so worthy of. Lord, we praise you. Glory to your name, God. We've come together today to worship you and to sing and to declare our need for you, our dependence upon you, our trust in you. And we have come to learn of you, to seek your face. We want to know you in a greater way. And we want to fall more deeply in love with you. And we want to serve you more obediently. And we want to worship you more passionately. So I ask, Lord, we all ask that you uh, would move mightily in this room as the word is going forth. Speak through me, Lord. Use me, God. May your word come to life. May it be powerful and living. And may it penetrate the hearts and the minds in this room. May you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So as I said, this is the Passion Week. That word passion, it means suffering. Uh, this is the week of Christ's suffering. This is the last week of His earthly life. At this point, He is making His way to Jerusalem. He is coming for the Passover feast. Uh, he's about a week away from the Passover. This is His last Passover meal. In the Gospel of John, we see three Passover meals recorded that Jesus celebrated. 
And it says in Luke, this particular Passover, Jesus had a very fervent desire to eat this Passover with His disciples before He suffered. This was a very special time for Jesus. This was the hour for which He had come. This was the reason for which He had come. And the Passover meal was very special. It was very symbolic of the suffering of the Lamb. And that was the point at which Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper when we partake of the communion elements. That is reflecting what is happening at the Passover and what uh, ultimately would happen when Christ would be crucified the following morning. So he has begun his pilgrimage from the northernmost part of Israel, which is Galilee, on down through Samaria, and then ultimately he will land in Jerusalem, which is the capital, the heart of the southernmost region of Israel. And uh, the Scriptures, to some degree, kind of record his journey as he goes. And in Luke, uh, it tells us how he was entering into Jericho, uh, which is kind of on the way to Jerusalem as you begin the, the ascent up into the holy city. And that is where Jesus healed the blind beggar Bartimaeus. You may know the story. And then next, he encounters Zacchaeus as he enters into Jerusalem, not Jerusalem, excuse me, into Jericho. And so no doubt, as Jesus is on his way, as he is making his pilgrimage, as he is ministering, he is picking up uh, vast crowds of people. And, and that was typical. They would travel in large crowds on these pilgrimages to the holy feasts. And so Matthew, or excuse me, John chapter 12, verse 1, tells us that it was about six days before the Passover when Jesus arrives in Bethany. And so this is about, at this point, he's two miles away from Jerusalem. And Jesus is in Bethany, and um, this is the point at which Mary anoints his feet with fragrant oil. And you'll remember Judas uh, kind of scolded her for, for wasting this ointment, saying it could have been uh, sold and, and given to the poor. You, I'm sure we all remember that. So that, that's happening right here at this point. So Jesus is kind of set up at Lazarus, Mary, and Martha's house in Bethany about two miles away. And He arrives on what would be uh, the Sabbath day. And it's possible that they left out the following day and entered into Jerusalem, which is what we would refer to as the triumphal entry, what we're looking at today, uh, also known as Palm Sunday. But it seems likely that it was a Monday. It seems more likely that it was on a Monday that Jesus left uh, Mary and Martha's house in Bethany and they made their way into Jerusalem and the king entered Jerusalem. He would have been crucified a few days later, most likely on a Friday, in the grave on Friday, Saturday, and then what happened on Sunday? He rose from the grave. Amen. And so that's basically what we're celebrating as we consider that. And that's uh, kind of the timeline for the week that we're in. And today we, we celebrate Palm Sunday, although it, it is likely that it was a, a Monday, as I said. Uh, but what we're looking at today is the triumphal entry, the day that the king entered into Jerusalem, the day that the city received her king, the day that Jesus got the praise that he deserved. So in verses 1 through 3, in Matthew chapter 21 there, we see that Jesus is now approaching Jerusalem. 
As I said, they were coming from Bethany, which was about two miles away, but in between Jerusalem and Bethany was this town called Bethphage. And as they're passing through, Jesus sends two of his disciples into Bethphage to get this uh, donkey to bring it in. So they're on their way to Jerusalem at this point, and he says to them that if anyone says anything to you, tell them that the Lord has need of it. So I don't know exactly how Jesus knew about this donkey and these people. It could have been a super, supernatural thing, but uh, it's very likely that Jesus knew these people and knew that they had the donkey and no need to, um, to necessarily spiritualize it. It could be either or. But the point that I want to make here is that Jesus is in control of these circumstances. Jesus is in control. He's not a victim He's not a victim of circumstances. He's not taken by force as a victim and crucified. This was all part of God's plan. And Jesus is aware of this. He submitted Himself to the Father's will. He freely gave Himself to suffer and to die. And He freely gave His life away. No one took it from Him. He's not a victim. And in fact, prophecy is lining up perfectly even in this very moment, and we see that in verses 4 and 5. It says, All this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is actually a prophecy from Zechariah 9.9, almost at the very end of the Old Testament, uh, two books from the very end. I'll read that to you. Zechariah 9.9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this is fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. No doubt in my mind, as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem in this way, the people know exactly what's happening. They see, they understand, they know the prophecy. Jesus is fulfilling it perfectly. And first I would say, Jesus is making His way in as a king. He is entering into Jerusalem as the king, but this is no ordinary king. This is the humble king. We sang that song last week, and I love that song. Jesus is the humble king. He's not like other kings. His entrance into this world was very different. He wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a manger. He lived a life of obscurity, difficulty, hardship, working with his hands. And then he um, receives kind of this, um, this meager uh, coronation, if you will, as he comes in. in. In one sense, this is spectacular, but in another sense, it's not all that impressive. People are throwing their dirty clothes out in the street and waving tree branches at him. You know, and that's our humble king. And he didn't die surrounded by loved ones and the comfort of a a bed and and a palace. He died on a rugged cross being mocked and and scoffed at and, and everything else. So that is our humble king. Also, I want you to notice that this is the mark of a king who comes in peace. He didn't enter in on a war horse. He entered in on a a donkey. And the idea here is that this is the Prince of Peace. He came to bring peace. And that is the case. The first time. He will come again and He will not be bringing peace that time. He'll come with a sword. Uh, 
He'll be the conquering king, the warrior king. He'll be the judge who has come to bring God's judgment upon the earth. And I won't spend a lot of time in that, but that is very simply the reality. Jesus came to bring peace the first time, but He comes to bring judgment when He returns. Verses 6-8, through So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set Him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. So we understand this. This is a, this is a symbol of homage, of support, of, of respect, of honor. Throwing their clothes on the road. We actually see this happen in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13. When Jehu was made the king, the people did the same thing. They rushed out there and began to throw their clothes out in the street in front of him as an as a act of humility, of support, of homage. But we also know that they were waving palm branches. They were waving palm branches. And you have to wonder, what exactly does that mean? And I think that there's a lot of significance to this. I can't be 100%, but I think it's interesting. And if you'll allow me, I'd like to take just a quick rabbit trail. In between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the intertestamental period, there was a lot happening on the world stage. And after Alexander the Great came through and conquered the known world, he died at a very young age, and his empire was split basically into four empires. So the Seleucids were one of those empires, and the leader of the Seleucid Empire, Antiochus Epiphanes, was a, a bad guy. He was a very bad guy, and he hated the Jews, and they came in and they took control of Israel, particularly Jerusalem, and they put a stop to all the, the, the worship in the temple, the sacrifices, all the, the holy rites of the Jews. That came to an end. But then he went beyond that. They started to enforce pagan worship in the temple. They erected uh, statues of Zeus. They were sacrificing pigs in God's temple. And um, there was a, a family that, that came up in the middle of all this. And the father, his name was Mattathias. And he was a priest and he refused to sacrifice. And someone actually stood up in his place to do so and he killed them. He killed that person and, and that became the beginning of the Jewish revolt known as the Maccabean Revolt. This happened about 167 B.C. About 100 years earlier from where we're at today in, in Matthew chapter 21. And it was miraculous, but they actually overthrew the Seleucids through guerrilla warfare tactics, so on and so forth. But the Lord was no doubt with them. And they restored temple worship. They cleansed the temple. And when this family, along with all of their, their warriors, came into town in a procession, everyone took palm branches and started waving them in honor of these warriors for the fact that they had overthrown the enemy and restored temple worship and cleansed the temple. So it could be that even this is reminiscent of that. Christ the King has come and He has come to set things right. And it's interesting that the very next thing that happens after this in Matthew 21, does anybody know? Where does Jesus immediately go? He goes to cleanse the temple. He goes in and He starts knocking over the tables and, and cleansing the temple of the Lord. So Interesting thought there. Just a little rabbit trail. I don't know about you guys, but I really dig that 
that history and, and stuff that happened um, at different times. It's very possible that that is all picturesque of that. Verse 9, it says, Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now we know that phrase, don't we? We sing it a lot. Does anybody actually know what Hosanna means? What's that? The King? Hmm? Save now. Very good. Save now. So a couple of us know. I would venture to say a lot of people don't know, but we sure sing it, and it's in a lot of different songs. Um, They're crying out, Hosanna. This comes out of Psalm 118. That's the only place where you find that. Um, It means save now. But it, it has actually evolved in time. Now, the word in the Hebrew was Hoshiana, and then it was transliterated into the Greek as Hosanna, and then it was transliterated again from the Greek into English as Hosanna. Uh, to transliterate something means that you simply take a word in one language and, and make it sound exactly the same in another language. To translate something would be to actually give its definition. For example, um, baptism. In the Greek, baptizo is the word, and in the English, it's baptize. That's a transliteration. That's not a translation. A translation would be immersed or dunked. You understand? So that's what's happening here. Hosanna is a transliteration from Hebrew, which simply meant save now. Like, please, help. We are in desperate need. We need salvation. Save now. But over time, it became something else. It came to mean, praise God, salvation has come. Salvation is here. It's kind of the idea of someone who's drowning and they're coming up out of the water and they're crying out for help and then the lifeguard comes and grabs them and as they're being brought to uh, safety, it went from a cry of help to a cry of praise. First it meant, please help me, we're dying. Then it meant, help is here, salvation has come. Thank you, thank you. So at this point, it's a mark of praise. Salvation has come. Salvation has come. And the Son of David, and this is a messianic term, uh, you see it all throughout the New Testament. Uh, when, when they're talking about the Messiah, the Christ, the foretold one, the Son of David is a clear title for that. And they say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this, uh, as I said, was from Psalm 118.26, a Hallel psalm. But something I think that's even more interesting than that, and... Um, it is very possible that what is happening in this very moment is the fulfillment of a very, very significant Old Testament prophecy. So would you turn with me to Daniel chapter 9? We're just going to read it together. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. And I'm not going to go deep into this prophecy at all. We could easily spend the entire time just trying to understand this prophecy. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Daniel is currently in the Babylonian captivity, the 70 year captivity. Now, there have been uh, exchanges of power already in the time that he has been in captivity. 
I won't go into that. But this is a prophecy of something that would come. And it says, verse 24, Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. So there is a prophecy given here from the time that from the time that Jerusalem is to be restored until the Messiah comes. There's a, there's a gap here. We know in the Old Testament, Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was torn down. People were taken into captivity. And we know eventually uh, people started coming back over and rebuilding. Right, Nehemiah rebuilt the wall. Uh, we, all, we all know that fairly well. Well, there's a prophecy here in Daniel that says that from the time that that decree is given to rebuild to the time that the Messiah comes, there is this number given, these 70 weeks. Now, I've heard there are a number of thoughts and ideas about what this 70 weeks actually means, but uh, in one of the ways that it has been figured, and it makes a lot of sense to me, is very fascinating we land on the day that Jesus came into Jerusalem for the triumphal entry. From the time that Artaxerxes gave the decree for the restoration of Jerusalem to the very day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry matches up to the day. And I'm not even going to attempt to explain all that and how that works. I would encourage you to check that out for yourself. It's very fascinating. And so that, to me, again, it's just the fingerprints of God and the Word of God as we see a prophecy like that and fulfilled to the very day as our King, Christ, enters into Jerusalem to present Himself. Pretty cool, huh? Alright. So back in Matthew. There's been a lot of technical stuff in here up to this point. There's been a lot having to do with feasts and historical figures and prophecies and a lot of technical stuff to work through, I will admit. But this is the point in which... I want to kind of shift. I want to shift and I want to uh, reflect on Christ and, and get a little more practical with you guys. So I appreciate you hanging tight. I appreciate you stick, uh, sticking with me through that, but I don't want to lose you now, guys. If there was uh, any point that I really want you to, to hang in there with me, this is it. So as I had mentioned earlier, this was the day that Jesus got what He actually deserved. What He actually deserved was praise adoration, worship. And as he entered into Jerusalem on this day, he finally allowed that to happen. There were other times where they tried to take him by force and make him king, but Jesus wouldn't let them do it. But today, in God's timing, it is happening. And there is great excitement, there is great joy, there is great praise. And in one sense, this is a very glorious thing that is happening here. A very glorious thing. And I'm going to quote Spurgeon. And the wording might be a little difficult uh, to follow, but try to hang with me. He said, It is a mark of Christ's presence when the church becomes enthusiastic. 
We sometimes hear complaints about revivals being too exciting, and perhaps the criticism is deserved, but I would like to see a little bit of the fault. This age does not generally sin in the direction of being too excited concerning divine things. We've erred so long on the other side that perhaps a little excess in the direction of fervor might not be the worst of all calamities. At any rate, I would not try, or excuse me, I would not fear to try it. So this is a glorious thing, man. People are excited about Jesus. And Spurgeon's saying that um, it doesn't seem that the church errs too much on the side of excitement as much as we do kind of, eh, you know, we just kind of show up and go through the, mo- the motions. Maybe we'll show up on time, maybe not. Maybe we'll roll in 15, 20 minutes late, you know, and uh, kind of get through it and, and receive the Word and uh, chat a little bit on our way out the door, you know, and that's, that's a church experience, right, for so many people. Um, so we look at this crowd and we say, that in a sense, that's a very beautiful thing. We could use a little bit of that, amen? We could exude a little bit of excitement for Jesus and for the Gospel. But on the flip side of that, and this is where I really want to bring it in, it was a beautiful thing. It was a glorious thing that Jesus was receiving praise and that He was being adored the way that He was. But at the end of the day, these were praises of misconception. They didn't really understand who Jesus was or what He really came to accomplish. They had very different ideas about what Jesus was there to do. And they believed that the Messiah would come and it would be, He would be more of a political figure sent by God to destroy the yoke of Rome and to restore Israel back to their glorious days. Uh, and that's what they were looking for. They were looking for Jesus to come in and to take over. And the disciples really seemed to think the same thing. And they wanted to be right there on the front line. They wanted to be in the action. And they wanted to receive the glory when it all happened, when it all went down. These people had excitement, they had zeal, but it wasn't according to knowledge. It wasn't according to truth. And that's the other side of the coin. There are a lot of churches out there that have great excitement, great joy, but they don't have a great knowledge of the truth. And so their excitement, their joy, it's kind of misinformed. It's misinformed. Now, let me just say this. I don't blame the crowd. I wouldn't expect them to know any better. Even the disciples didn't seem to know any better. And they had been with Jesus for three years, day in and day out, and they still didn't seem to get it. So I'm not criticizing them at all. But I will say this. This should be a warning for us, church. This should be a warning for us. Because we can have some misconceptions about Jesus. We can come up with some ideas of our own that might not necessarily be the truth. So first off, what we know is that there are false Christs out there, is there not? You know, the the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, that is not the true Christ at all. And you wouldn't know that at first. You wouldn't know that at first. It can be very deceptive, but it is not the Christ of the Bible. Very different. The Jehovah's Witnesses actually believe that he was Michael the Archangel who became Jesus and, and is now Michael the Archangel again, so on and so forth. And I just I won't spend a lot of time with that except to say 
It's happening, it's common, it's all around us. People are worshiping false Christ. But then within the church, there is what I call the Christ of our own creation. Right? We kind of uh, make up the Jesus that we want Him to be. The way we think He ought to be. And there's a lot of damaging literature out there that I think uh, contributes to this. There are devotionals and books out there that are written that people are just eating up and they don't really know any better, and this is how they perceive Christ, and that, that is how they, uh, they picture Him. That is so dangerous. That is deadly dangerous. And then let me just say, uh, regionally, the, the Bay Area misconception of Christ. Everybody has Jesus sized up, don't they? They have Christians sized up. And uh, everybody seems to know what Jesus is against, but they don't know what He's for. And um, I think they, they have the wrong picture altogether. They have the wrong idea for whatever reason. But we worship with a biblically informed worship. We have the truth. We understand, do we not? We understand who Jesus is and how Jesus is and what is pleasing in His sight and what is displeasing to Him. We want to be biblically informed. This is our anchor. We've been told that we are to worship God in spirit and in truth. It, spirit means sincerely, genuinely, from the heart, with excitement. We want that, right? Don't we want that? But that in and of itself is not enough. It has to be according to truth. It has to be according to truth. So let me just say this, guys. This is a beautiful thing. The Christian life, it's a journey. We explore. It's an adventure. We spend our lives discovering this great God in His Word. We spend our lives getting to know this God whom we say that we love and whom we serve. We'll spend all of eternity, I believe, getting to know Him. I guess what I'm talking about within theology is called the knowability of God. The knowability of God. God can be known. Did you know that? I hope you know that. We can't know everything there is to know about God, but there is much about God that we can understand to some degree or the other. But not only can we know about Him, we can know Him. We can experience Him personally. We can have a relationship with Him, and that's what I'm talking about. We want to know the Lord. We want to know Him accurately. We want to know Him according to His Word. And we want to know Him experientially. And we want to praise Him. We want our praise to be an outflow of this. It was right that they praised the Lord. It was right. But it was misinformed. How much more should we praise God with the truth? We are informed. We know the truth. We understand these things. How much more then should we be a people marked by praise? Amen? And as I said, it's a journey, it's an adventure. And uh, I like Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. It says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And here it is, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And that is the wonderful task that we have. We get to know this great God. We get to understand what pleases Him. We get to find out what is acceptable to Him. Learn it and do it. 
Learn it and do it. We seek the Lord's face every day. We seek Him like treasure. And we dig deep and we want to know our God and we want to know Him in a greater way and we want to know Him more intimately and we want to obey Him. And it is an adventure. It is a journey. So let me just... You know, one thing came to my mind as I was thinking about this. It can be overwhelming when you take the Bible and you think, you know, this is a big book and it can be a complicated book and it can be overwhelming to think of trying uh, to read the whole thing and, and it's important to do that and there are ways in which you can do that in a, whole, in a year, right? And that breaks it up, but doesn't even that at times seem a little daunting, right? So my encouragement is take a book. For instance, the Gospel of John. Take the Gospel of John. Master that book. It's 21 chapters. So you could do one chapter a day, and in three weeks you've read the Gospel of John, and then keep doing it, keep doing it. Or you could read seven chapters in a day. In three days you've read the Gospel of John. You could read it through two times in a week. Master that book. Get to where chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, you can just start naming off things that significant things that happen in that book, if you can master the Gospel of John, if you can come to know that book intimately, you are, you're pretty equipped. I mean, that's, that's, that's an awesome thing. And when you think of it that way, that becomes a little more doable, doesn't it? You tracking with me? Does that make sense? So I'm not encouraging you to neglect the whole of the Scriptures. We should be in the Bible. We want to understand the whole counsel of God from cover to cover. But don't become so overwhelmed by that that you don't do it at all because the truth is if you take one beautiful book of the Bible and give yourself to it and master that book, um, that's, that's a pretty phenomenal way to, to journey and to adventure and to experience the Lord and to come to know Him and to learn of Him. And uh, the outcome ought to be obedience. It ought to be praise. All right, moving on. We're about to wrap up right here. As I said, it was right that Jesus be praised. It was right. And Jesus said so. In Luke chapter 19, in the, in the same account, but in a different book, some of the Pharisees actually came up and told Jesus, you need to stop them from, from doing this. Stop your disciples. Does anybody know what His response to them was? If these stop, even the rocks will cry out. Jesus was going to be praised and nobody was going to stop that. It was right, and it is right. So I want to close with one idea. Let me close with this. It was good that Jesus was praised. He was worthy of it. He deserved it. He deserved that. But He didn't stop there. He didn't stop there. He went on. He went on to be mocked. He went on to be beaten. He went on to be scourged. He went on to be forsaken, to be crucified. He deserved praise and we deserved punishment. But He went on to take our punishment for us. Is that amazing? This was right. Jesus deserved praise. It didn't stop there. John 13, 1, it says that Jesus, He knew that His hour had come. And having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. He didn't stop short. He went all the way to the cross. He knew why He came and He accomplished that for which He came. To secure salvation for men and women. To secure salvation for our eternal souls. 
Though he deserved praise and nothing less, he went beyond that and he received the crucifixion. This is, I, I would like to close with this idea of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. He took our place. He deserved praise and nothing else, but He took our punishment. Jesus took our punishment. He drank our hell. He drank our hell. He drank the wrath of God that was intended for the nations. He took it upon Himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus died in our place. He became sin. He who knew no sin, the beautiful, perfect, holy Lamb of God, took the sin of the world upon Himself, and He died for us. The One who knew no sin became sin so that we could have righteousness, so that we could have His righteousness. 1 Peter 3.18 for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. He suffered for our sins. Christ suffered. He was just. We were unjust. The just suffered for the unjust, that we might be brought to God. That's amazing. And that's what Jesus did for us. The beautiful Son of God gave Himself. He died in our place when all He really deserved was praise and adoration. Yet He went beyond that. He didn't stop there. He went all the way. He loved us to the very end. He suffered the agonies of cross and was forsaken of God so that we could have life. Now, if that's not a reason to praise Him, I don't know what is. Is that not a reason to praise Him? Ought we praise Him today? Yes, we should. So we're going to close with that. Do we have a song to close with? Alright, we're going to close with a song. So just by way of reminder, throughout this week, as Pastor Bill had said in the beginning of this time, let your focus be upon the, the Passion Week of Christ. That He was making His pilgrimage into Jerusalem. That He was celebrated as the triumphant King. But that he went on to be rejected, to be scorned, to be crucified. But it didn't end there either, did it? He rose. He rose from the grave. And He conquered over death. And He secured eternal life for us, for those who would believe. And if you don't know Him, you can. You can know Him. And you can know Him today. If you don't know Him, I would encourage you to come forward. Uh, during this song, we'll have people here that are available to pray for you. If you want to repent of your sins and confess Christ and come to know God today, uh, we want to we want to encourage you with all our hearts to do that. Today is the day. But beyond that, I want to encourage you guys to to reflect and meditate and to worship now, throughout this week and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for the cross. We thank you, Jesus, that you were willing to go all the way to the cross for us and that you secured our salvation you rose again you conquered over death and hell and sin and uh, we have a reason to praise we have a reason to praise you're worthy of it period 
if you never saved us, if you never made a way of salvation, you would be worthy of praise because of who you are. But you did save us, Lord. How much more now should we worship you? We do, Lord. We worship you in this place. It's our joy and our privilege to praise you. And we do that in Jesus' name. Amen.